Hey, welcome to night school. I've got Batty on my lap here, and I'm sitting on the couch. It's been a while since I had a couch episode. I'm gonna give myself that. I'm gonna give myself. I'm gonna give myself a present, an early Christmas present. I'm gonna sit on the couch while I do an episode. It's it's me time. I'm getting some me time in. You know, uh, when I'm on the couch, I'm getting in some me time. But uh, yeah, I'm on the couch. I'm going to try not to bother Batty too much because I do have to kind of hunch forward. As much as you think a couch is going to be, oh, this is going to be a real comfy episode. If he's sitting on the couch, he's he's in for a, a long, we call this binge casting. You got your binge watching and your binge eating. Well, this is binge casting. And it's, it doesn't involve listening to podcasts. It doesn't involve binge listening. As the kids say these days, binge listening. Uh, binge Crosby. Uh, no, it, it, it's not what it's not binge listening. It's you're the one recording these. I do a lot of binge casting. Oh, is this your man cave? No, it's my binge cave. <laughs> that's way better because that's what it should be. I mean, that's kind of what it is. It's like this is where dad goes and drinks. Like before that was a before the whole man cave thing, and it was just a den. Which didn't that do the job? You know, because I'm not alone, you know, obviously, I mean, that's another example of low-hanging fruit. That's a low-hanging ball sack to make fun of the word man cave or say you don't like the word man cave. I mean, that's so obvious why why that term sucks. But it sucks even more because it replaced the term den. And people acted like it was a new thing. You know, you'd go over, my house never had one, you know, and there was no den in my house, but you'd go over to some kids' houses growing up, and they'd be like, "Oh, where's?" You'd be like, "Where's your dad?" In this weird world that I didn't live in, where you're asking everybody where their family members are, but still, sometimes it would come up, and it'd be like, "Dad's in the den." And then I I heard that at someone's house, and I was just like, "The den." And when you saw the den, it felt like a den. It was usually darker than the rest of the house. Leather seats, or not not leather seats, leather, like a leather couch or a leather chair. I feel like even if the rest of the house didn't have wood paneling, you go into the den and it's, it's got this dark sort of wood paneled feeling. Even ex- not necessarily a cheap one, although I've seen some cheap dens in my life. I've, I've definitely gone to someone's house and they have a den all right, but it's a cheap den. I see you got you got this this place ain't nothing but a cheap den. <laughs> I'm gonna have to use the I'm gonna have to use that out of context for something. A cheap den. But you go over and you'd be like, oh, this is yeah, this kid's dad has a den, but it's kind of a cheap den. It's kind of tacky. Like I I remember going over to someone's house and their the dad's den had like a an eagle carved out of wood, which I have no problem with on its own, but it, this was just. This seemed like something you just bought at you know a roadside tourist shop. You know, this just seemed like something that was a dime a dozen. It just made it depressing. Like, I mean, I imagine there's a certain kind of wood-carved eagle that would really lift a den up out of the cheap horror that this guy was living in. But this was a, a cheap eagle, a cheap wooden eagle for a cheap den. That's what that was. Um, but uh, anyway, 
uh, yeah, that was just a term that people used forever. This is the den, and then people came up with this dumb new compound phrase that sounds funny to describe it, which means the same thing. You know, you think about a bear having a den, and it was cavernous. I don't know. It's just kind of silly how that replaced the word den, and people also acted like it was a new thing. I don't know. But uh, just retracing steps here. Uh, you know, earlier today, I went for a walk, and they were doing some sort of tree cutting in the neighborhood. Like I was hearing chainsaws going off all over the place. And, uh, you know, I walked by this one patch of median, and the guys with the chainsaws, they weren't anywhere near this, but still the same neighborhood. But I saw there, there's a tree in the middle of a median, and uh, I noticed that somebody had taken white spray paint and spray painted a rectangle around the entire median. It was a rectangular-shaped median, and they completely surrounded it. It's not very big, so... You know, it had to have something to do with the tree. And there was also some sort of code written in spray paint. You know, some sort of, you know, I don't know if it's the city. I don't know who is handling this. I don't know who the guys with the chainsaws are, okay? I don't know who the guys with the chainsaws work for. But they have some sort of code system. And I didn't know if the guys with the chainsaws spray painted the grass. And that's always weird to see. Spray-painted grass. I mean, it makes me think of football. It makes me think of a sports field, you know, when they chalk the field or even paint it. I've known I've known them to paint football fields. I've known them to paint the lines and numbers on them. I think that's generally what they do, actually. I don't think chalk would, would stick. Those cleats would smear the chalk. You wouldn't know what yard line you're on because everybody's cleats would move that chalk all over the place. you got to paint the field. But yeah, when I saw the spray paint, I thought of football because of that. And, uh, you know, white spray paint on grass. But that's always just a weird sight. Anytime someone paints nature. You know, I was talking recently about the college woods here and how the kids have been spray painting on the trees. And it's a similar sort of feeling. A little less offensive on grass, though, because you know it's going to get cut. Like, spray-painting grass is like dyeing your hair, where you know it's going to grow back. You know it's going to, you know, grow through, and you're no longer going to see it. You know, it's going to get cut. It's going to get cut. Um, But, uh, you know, I saw that earlier. I was just like, hmm, I wonder, that must have something to do with the tree. That rectangular, that white rectangle has... uh, it has something to do with that tree. And then I went back for a walk just a little bit ago, and I walked by, and the tree's gone. There's a, a very short stump, about an inch of stump left. And they did that in between these walks, you know, between, you know, 12 o'clock, between noon and 7 o'clock today, they cut that tree down. And it was very dramatic to see that. It was very dramatic to go from, because I, I don't think I, it didn't cross my mind that they were going to cut that tree down, because it didn't look like there was anything wrong with it. I just assumed they were going to trim it. I assumed that the spray paint had something to do with the tree, because it didn't seem like it had anything to do with the grass. <laughs> you know, so I assumed somehow it, it related to the tree, especially because I know they were doing tree stuff in the neighborhood. But I really did not expect to come by later tonight 
and to see that they chopped the whole tree down. And maybe there was some, maybe it was diseased. Maybe it was a diseased tree, a D tree. That's what we call a D tree, a diseased tree. You know, maybe it was a diseased tree. You know, I've decided not to mourn this tree. I had to make a decision when I saw this. And it was, I mean, trust me, this was a dramatic unfoldment for me. I've seen, I've gone to places where they've removed a tree before, a tree that I was familiar with. I've gone somewhere and been like, oh, at this park, they got rid of this tree that I, you know, I rec- this, I, I remember that tree. It's like Lord of the Rings and sort of stuff. You know, I remembered that tree. But I've never, like, seen a tree early in the morning and thought it was weird that there was, you know, some sort of spray paint in the grass around it and then walk by later that night and seen it gone. That's never, I've just never had that happen in one day. Uh, I think the immediacy is what makes it dramatic. Because if I went by there, you know, a week from now and I saw that the tree was gone, I'd be like, oh, I bet that's from uh, that, whatever that spray paint, the rectangle and the code. I'm going to talk to my neighbors about this. I'm going to say, did you see that rectangle in the code on the grass? There's, there's some sort of code. It's there. to It communicates something to the man with the chainsaw. And we don't know who they work for, but they come and they get the trees. Talk to your neighbors that way. you got to make people work for it. If you want people to, you know, if people are interested in what you're saying, make them work for it. Make them do the equation themselves. No, it was a very dramatic experience, though, but I decided not to mourn it. I decided I wasn't going to mourn this tree. I don't know if it was a D tree. I don't know if it was a disease tree. I don't know what was wrong. Maybe it was just purely, maybe some cruel human just said, let's get rid of that tree. Let's send them in with the chainsaws to get rid of that tree today. Maybe just it was some act of, an act of anti-nature, anti-naturalism. Somebody, the, the boss man, whoever the boss is of the men with the chainsaws, sent those men there today just to be cruel, just to be cruel to nature. <laughs> You know, I don't know, but I decided not to mourn it for multiple reasons. One is because I, I bought a freaking tree today. Earlier today, I bought a Christmas tree in a mall parking lot. It was actually perfect. It was the same guy I got a tree from last year. And it's in the mall parking lot. Nice trees, too. You know, they're nice trees. And, uh, you know, it smells like pine, which is the thing I want. I always want to smell my Christmas tree. But as I was buying it, as the guy was putting it on top of my car, I looked over and there were two teenage boys next to their car in the mall parking lot and they were smoking cigarettes and one of them was trying to light the cigarette for the other one. But everything about it was awkward, you know, in the same way that, you know, you can't just buy a leather jacket and look like somebody who wears a leather jacket. As Miles said, you know, you look like the leather jacket's wearing you. It's the same sort of thing with this, where it's like you can't just... It's it's why, like, new cigarette smokers, teenage cigarette smokers always look so awkward. It's like these cigarettes were smoking these kids. These kids weren't smoking cigarettes. The cigarettes were smoking them, is how it looked. And seeing this kid awkwardly try to light his friend's cigarette, uh, and them just, like, neither of them knowing how to hold a cigarette. Not that I do. 
you know, I used to get drunk and smoke with my friends. That was pretty much the only time that I've had cigarettes. And I knew, you know, I mean, maybe I was drunk enough to where I looked natural. But for the most part, I don't know how to smoke a cigarette. I don't know how to inhale. I don't know how long to inhale. You know, I know I've made the mistake of, oh, it's like weed. Like just subconsciously, that's what you're used to smoking. So you take a big inhale and hold it. And it's horrible. It's a horrible experience. But these kids, they definitely didn't know what they were doing. They were pretty young, too. You know, I think they were still high school age. But they they just looked so awkward. But I thought it was just so perfect. I was like, this is a circle of life moment where I'm buying a Christmas tree in a mall parking lot while two teenage boys 10 feet away are awkwardly smoking, hanging out in the mall parking lot, which is awesome. You know, I miss hanging out in parking lots. That's one thing that you don't ever want to take for granted is that time as a teenager when you and your friends are old enough to drive but not old enough to really do anything. And it's after dark, especially, you know, depending on the time of year. It could be winter, it could be summer. It's fun in, any, in either case as long as you dress for it. As long as you dress for the lot, you're going to have a good time. But, yeah, when your friends are too young to really do much but you do have licenses. Somebody has a license, and you just pull your cars into a parking lot and hang out. It's a, You tailgate. You know, it's, it's the real tailgating. The real tailgaters are teenagers, but I always just loved that experience. You know, in the moment when it was happening, there was always something magical. And what was funny about that is you, you were usually thinking, what are we going to do? Who has a plan? You were just sitting there killing time, being like, well, where are we going to go? What are we going to do? You know, when people had cell phones, which not everybody did when this was going on, but some of us had primitive cell phones. And so somebody, and people called each other more than, you know, my friends, you know, we would, we would call each other and, and like, what are you doing? Oh, we're, we're over at so-and-so's house. You know, his mom is gone. Oh, we're down, we're smoking weed down at the water. You know, whatever it is that you were, somebody was doing, you'd call your friends and invite them in the moment. There was a little bit of text messaging. I mean, I still remember the first text message I ever got. It was toward the end of my junior year of high school, and I'd gotten my first cell phone, and this girl who I, I guess we kind of went on a couple dates, but it never went anywhere, never actually became anything, but we hung out for a while, she sent me a message about how her coworker at Subway was wearing a puka shell necklace. And I think that's a great first that's a great first text message. You never forget your first text message. You never forget it. But how she had this guy who like based on today's standards would probably be considered Asperger's or something. He'd probably people would probably say he's you know neuroatypical. Using the modern jargon, he's, he's neuroatypical spectrum jumper. He's a spectrum jumper, but he's neuroatypical. You know, somebody would probably say that about him now. But he was the type of kid who in high school would wear a baseball cap, a Hawaiian shirt, a puka shell necklace, and, you know, it, just, just that kind of look. You know, but but not popular, like not cool, just sort of in his own space. Like just a guy who's into baseball, and he's mildly autistic. Could probably tell you a lot about baseball statistics, which is good because I like statistics. I like football statistics. I like to know 
I always, you know, whenever I hear about a certain player, whenever I, whenever I see, whenever I'm watching football and there's a player that impresses me who I haven't heard of, I, I go to Pro Football Reference, the website, and uh, they just give it to you straight. You don't have to click through a bunch of links and try to find the information like you would on NFL.com. You know, Pro Football Reference, just it's like looking at a spreadsheet with exactly what you want. And uh, you know, if, if I would love to be sponsored by Pro football reference uh i would love if that was a sponsor because as you can hear i have all the right things to say about the service they provide so i understand that kind of person and to be honest i didn't even know this guy at all really he was my age the girl that i was talking to was a year older than me and she happened to work with this guy otherwise i'd never even thought of him he just kind of slipped through the halls wearing a yankees cap and a hawaiian shirt and a puka necklace and he is immortalized in my life as the subject of the very first text message I ever received from a girl I liked, too. The very first text message I ever received (laughs) was from a girl I liked. That is awesome. (laughs) When you think about how much people's, like, texting lives revolve around some kind of, like, flirtation or wanting to hear from that girl, wanting to hear from that guy, whatever it is, uh, you know, how much how much text messaging and your level of excitement, you know, to your the level of excitement you feel for a text message, you know, is directly related to the level of romantic interest you have in somebody. So it's like the fact that my very first text message is from this girl and that she was just making some sort of, you know, she was doing some people watching, you know, it's a good subject. This guy was wearing... She said a, a necklace made of shells. She didn't even say puka shell. She said, blah, 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 what's his name, is wearing a necklace made of shells. And I just knew instantly what she meant. Uh, but anyway, I, I did buy a Christmas tree today. And seeing those kids... Oh, yeah, parking lots. I want to finish the parking lot uh, topic because I do miss that experience of hanging out in parking lots. I miss... You know, you pull in, you're, there's three or four cars. Each car had a bunch of people in it. So you got a group of about, let's say, 10 people. 10's a good number. You don't want 20 people. You don't want 20 people standing around in a circle in a parking lot. And grocery store parking lots are always the best. In the same way that people will, I don't know if it's still legal, but for a while people would pull their RVs up into grocery store parking lots and sleep there being a teenager i mean it's a place for yeah it's it's a place if you don't have anywhere else to go that's what grocery store parking lots are they're a place to go if you don't have anywhere else to go and why don't supermarkets promote this because you actually we end up buying things there people we when you hang out in a supermarket parking lot you end up buying things from the supermarket not a week's worth of groceries but i'll get a soda or two i'll get a soda and a candy bar here which adds up and all you got to do is let some teenagers hang out here and maybe they'll buy shit. So it's, you know, there's incentive for the grocery stores to allow this. And as far as I know, they do. Because I've never, despite how many hundreds of hours I spent as a teenager hanging out in grocery store parking lots, I was never once reprimanded. Because they see you. They keep tabs on their parking lots. They know that that is prime real estate. They know how important that parking lot is. 
And they're sending people out. They're sending agents out into the field all day. They, they send those kids out to get grocery carts. So they know you're there. And I was, I've never once been reprimanded. If you've been reprimanded, this is like a, if you're watching Jerry Springer or Ricky Lake, how they, they'll do those call, those call outs to like get certain people on the show. They'll be like, you know, were you ever reprimanded in a grocery store parking lot and, and want to talk about it? You know, call like 1-800-1900-JERRY, you know, something like that. Sort of similar to an accident lawyer for that matter. It's like, were you reprimanded in a grocery store parking lot? You might be able to, uh, <laughs> you know, you might be able to sue, you know, something to that effect. Uh, it's all kind of the same thing. But I've never, I've never happened to me personally. And I've been, you know, I, I was reprimanded for various things as a teenager. Being in the wrong place, doing the wrong thing. Just, it's what happens. You know, and I wasn't even the biggest troublemaker. But I, I was never once told to leave a grocery store parking lot. And, uh, you know, maybe it is because we would, you know, buy a soda and a candy bar. Candy bars. Candy bars were a big deal growing up. And I, I, I know I'm, I'm going to stop. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop myself now because I don't want this to just to be totally just, oh, now we're going to talk about candy bars for 20 minutes. I know I know where that can go. But no, it is weird. You don't hear about candy bars. My theory is that candy bars were replaced by protein bars and made slightly less palatable to trick you but it's like basically all the candy bar companies were like you know what people people have gotten wise to the fact that our product sucks for you it really sucks for the body to eat, eat a bunch of candy bars so let's like cut down on the sugar let's make let's throw in some weird ingredient and call it a protein bar i feel like that's what happened to whatever happened to candy bars they're protein bars now enough about that though I just I miss parking lots and you should never take that for granted because as an adult you can't convince your friends to do that. Not that I've tried, I just know. I just intuitively know how adults think. I'm an expert in how adults think. I'm not a psychologist. I'm just an expert in how adults think. And I can tell you that if you were to tell your friends, even on a great summer night, hey, we're just going to pull our cars into the grocery store parking lot at the back. You know, you always park in the back. I mean, you're an idiot and a freak. If Even if you're a teenager, no matter who you are, if you party at the front of the grocery store parking lot, that's when they, see, that's where you get reprimanded. Like if someone were to come to me now and be like, well, hey, Eric, I, you said that you've never been reprimanded in a grocery store parking lot. Well, I was. The first thing I'd ask them would be, well, were you at the front of the parking lot or the back? And uh, it, it's like anytime, you know, you have a friend who's in trouble or something happened. Even though I will support a friend wholly, you know, I'm always going to be on my friend's side in their issue with somebody else. But I do want to know the facts. You know, I don't want to feel like an idiot when the facts come out. So I like to know the facts and, you know, so when a friend's complaining to me about something that happened, I usually, you know, I, I, I say, well, did that happen? When they if somebody were to say, oh, so-and-so said that I did this, the first thing I'm going to ask is, well, did you? Did you do something like that? Did you do something similar to that? Oh, you got in trouble did, uh, for breaking the rules. Did you break a rule? 
did you break the rule? You know, and sometimes they'll be like, yeah, but. And then you go, okay. I just wanted to know if, if the accusation was accurate. I wanted to make sure that I, I'm getting as close to the full story as I can from one biased account. So I'd do the same thing to you if you told me you were reprimanded in a grocery store parking lot. I would say, well, were you at the front of the lot? And if they said, yeah, I would say, well, there you go. Anybody who knows how to hang out in a grocery store parking lot knows that you leave the front of the lot to the big payers, to the big high rollers who are buying a week's worth of groceries, to the people who actually want to shop. Those front spaces are for the people who are buying a soda and a candy bar and they're going to get the heck out of there. They're taking it home. They're going to eat it on the road. Those front slots, those front spots, parking slots. You call them parking spots, I call them slots in the parking lot, baby. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who they'll buy their soda and candy bar and get out of there. And then there's those of us who buy our soda and candy bar and hang out for five hours in the back. But we do it in the back because that's respecting the business. Because they are providing you with this parking lot. Because if that grocery store wasn't there, you'd just be in a big empty lot that belonged to nobody. And that's where the real trouble you know, starts. Because somebody would try to kind of, it'd be like somebody trying to lay claim to it. You know, if it was just a big empty parking lot with nothing there, with no grocery store, you don't know, you, you don't know why that's there, you know, and there might be problems. Uh, but, uh, you know, the grocery store provides you with a sense of security, I think is the best way I could put it. So they're giving you something, they're giving you a lot, they're giving you bright lights too. And you don't do anything bad there. Like, you don't smoke weed in the grocery store parking lot. You don't drink beers in the lot. The lot is there when you return. You go smoke weed, you come back to the lot. You go drink a beer, you come back to the lot. You don't disrespect the lot. But anyway, back to the kids smoking their cigarettes. It just made me think about that, how those kids, are they're in it. They're swimming in the prime of their lives because they're able to hang out in the mall parking lot, which I never did. But uh, it's it's you know that's it's like it's like river otters and sea otters. They're basically the same thing, but they live in different habitats. That's what I would say for kids who hang out in mall parking lots versus kids who hang out in grocery store parking lots. It's different. It's like calling someone a river. It's like classifying an otter as a river otter opposed to a sea otter but we all you know when you say an otter you know what it means so you know it's the same thing for the the sorts of parking lots that you hang out in and in both cases the place is a resource like the mall is is a massive resource you can go in there and there are resources in there there's a food court there's all kinds of things so someone who hangs out in a mall parking lot they you know, that's that's kind of, uh, you know, that's something else because they have a lot of options. If they get bored, they can kind of wander through the mall. I was never much of a, I was never the kind of person who just went to the mall because I was bored. Uh, one time some friends and I, you know, obviously there's a bunch of references to getting stoned because, you know, teenagers. 
everybody these days, everybody these days smokes weed, it seems like. But uh, as teenagers, of course, you know, especially the later in high school it got, the more things revolved around either going to smoke weed or coming back from smoking weed. Everything was, you know, somehow linked to that ritual. But some friends and I, it was probably around the time we first started getting really into weed, our junior year of high school, you know, obviously we'd all done it. It was nothing new to us, but it was just, it was when we finally were like, you know what? This is what we want to do a lot. We want to do this a lot. It's kind of like when we finally just accepted that. And uh, we decided to go to the mall because we were like, you know, here's something to do. We've never been to the mall stone. We've never been to the mall stone. So we went and it was horrifying. We, I think we all had a, a deep, dark moment, and we barely, you know, we, we just kind of like walked through for five seconds and left. We just kind of went in, and we're just like, we can't do this, and left. Because I remember seeing some girls, probably our age, I mean, we were teenagers, and like seeing a girl walking with her purse, her and her friend, and they were all, they looked really sexy. They were like in, they had obviously coordinated their outfits and put on makeup, and they were really done up. And the way she was holding the purse and stuff was very deliberate. I mean, they were probably stoned. <laughs> no, but I think, I don't know if it was in response to them. Like, I remember seeing them and feeling weird about it. But my friend Nick, like, he looked around and he was just like, people get dressed up to come to the mall. And he just, he seemed to be the most impacted out of all of us. And I wasn't feeling good, but like, he seemed to be the one who was the most horrified by what he saw we might, I mean, there were so many things to look at. We all might have seen different things. But I saw these girls, these teenage girls who had obviously taken things up a notch for their mall tour. And I, you know, my buddy, though, was just like, he just had this horrifying epiphany where he was like, people get dressed up to come here to go to the mall. And then we just did a U-turn and left. It was just something had been laid bare. It's that sort of feeling. Oh, something has been laid bare. Like, you don't see through that as a kid. You know, this was Bellevue Square, too, which is is referenced in the, in the movie. It's not in the movie, but it's referenced in the movie Say Anything. But if you've read my autobiography, you already know this. If you've read my autobiography, you already read the chapter called Stoned in a Well-Known Mall. Stoned in a Well-Known Mall. You've already read that chapter, so you already knew all that. But, uh, you know, it's just that sort of thing, you know, proximity to a mall. There's mall. There's a species of teenagers that prefers the mall. There's a species that prefers the grocery store parking lot. But in buying a Christmas tree, to finally get back to that, to that branch off, speaking of trees... That's where we branched off into the last 30 minutes, last 25 minutes. And, uh, you know, when I saw that that tree had been removed from the neighborhood today, I did flash on the fact that I bought a tree that had been cut down just so I can prop it up in my living room and smell it for a week or two, a few weeks. I'm going to keep my tree up for a few weeks. And, uh, you know, but it was just, it's funny to me that, like, here I bought a tree that had been, you know, frivolously cut down. I'm not going to say Christmas is frivolous. Christmas is frivolous. Are you talking about Christmas, that frivolous holiday? It's not frivolous. 
but uh, still, I mean, it was it's a tree that was living and it was cut down. It was the, whatever reason is behind the cutting down of the tree that I purchased. You know, that's a process that I encourage to happen. I encourage them to cut these trees down so that people like me can prop them up. And, and I, I, I worship my Christmas tree. I worship the Christmas tree during the holidays. You know, it's not, it's not some callous thing to have a Christmas tree. I actually worship that tree and look at it every day. I put lights on it and ornaments. But, uh, you know, still, like, who am I to mourn that tree in the neighborhood that got cut down today when I myself am participating in this event where we all cut down trees for whatever reason, uh, whatever reason, I can tell you the trees don't entirely get it. They don't entirely understand. But I'm not allowed to mourn the removal of this tree, which, again, it could be a D tree. I don't know the backstory, why they removed the tree. Maybe somebody was going to, even though it wasn't a Christmas-style tree, maybe somebody's going to use this tree for Christmas. Maybe somebody's going to use this tree from the neighborhood. You know, it, was, it didn't have any leaves on it. It was just sort of a, it was a wintry tree. Not terribly big. Too big for most people's living rooms. But maybe somebody with a very big living room is going to do something with that tree. I don't know. But I don't have a right to mourn it. I guess I do. I, I have a right to mourn it. I just don't necessarily have a right to, I don't have a right to make a big deal out of it. <laughs> the right to make a big deal. I have the right to make a big deal out of this and I guess that's a good segue the right to make a big deal out of something or not make a big deal out of it Uh, you know because tonight is the eve of the anniversary of my mom's death and uh, when I went for that walk a little bit ago it did cross my mind as I was leaving the house to go on my walk just a little night walk it crossed my mind where I was like oh last year on this day was the last night that my mom ever lived through. Because I think about December 10th being the anniversary of her death. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's a very distinct memory, as you can imagine for me. It's not a day that, it's not a date that I will ever forget. And I, but I think of her, I think of that date just representing her, her, her passing away. Even though she was in the hospital for a couple days before that, you know, even I think December 3rd was the day that I celebrated my mom's memory. I guess, I, well, I mean, I obviously I, I'm always celebrating it, but that was December 3rd was the day that I did something to commemorate, you know, my the anniversary of my mom's passing. Because on December 3rd last year, my mom and I went for a walk at this beautiful park, Woodard Bay. And then two days later is when she got her infection or when, when, the inf- when the infection started to affect her, when it became apparent that something was going on. So December 3rd was the last day that she and I spent real quality time together. I think we saw each other on December 4th too, but it was like, you know, we, we had other stuff going on. But December 3rd was like we decided to go for this beautiful walk. It was a beautiful day. You know, we saw sea lions, we were in the woods, we were out on the water, and uh, we, I think, 
I don't know if we went out to eat afterwards or got, and I think we got coffee or something, but just that memory of going to the park with her is the last memory I have of spending quality time because of a week later she was dead, you know, December 3rd, December 10th, seven days. So December 3rd was the last day that I really remember spending quality time. So on that day I, I went to that park and, you know, that was special for me. You know, I don't feel the need to ritualize this though. I don't feel the need to ritualize or make anything ceremonial right now when it comes to her passing. I think of her birthday as more of a day of celebration. But there's no taking yourself out of the thought. Like, there's no way to not think about what was going on exactly a year ago. And so the last few days have been filled with that. And I've been more emotional than I've been in in quite a while. I've definitely just felt the tears well up, you know, and uh, no bawling. I don't I don't feel sad. That's the thing that's been strange through all this. Like, I felt more sad lately than I have in a while. But I don't feel like I've, I'm overcome with grief. And I guess that's the interesting thing about it being, you know, the anniversary of my mom's, well, the eve. I want to finish that thought. It's the eve of the anniversary. And you think of eves, and this coworker and I years ago, on Thursdays, we used to say to each other, Happy Friday Eve. And I can't believe I haven't talked about this before. And Maybe I have. Maybe I did bring this up in one of my many gushing Thursday discussions. Gushing about my love for... It's not just my favorite day of the week. It's the only day of the week. Thursday. To me, Thursday is everything. And tomorrow, the fact that you know the anniversary of my mom's death falls on a Thursday is just doubly beautiful. It makes tomorrow even more beautiful. But uh, with Thursday, you know, I'm already a big fan, as you, as any listener of this show knows, but I totally forgot how my coworker and I would refer to it as Friday Eve. On Thursdays, we would say, hey, happy Friday Eve. Because it's almost like, you know, unless shit really hits the fan, and depending on the sort of place you work, Fridays feel like the weekend has already started. A lot of people will leave early, you know, just different things going on. Uh, that kind of lighten the mood. And so, you know, Friday Eve. Thursday is Friday Eve. And I kind of use Eve in that way all the time. Like, anytime there's a night before something, I use that Eve. And it it just, but it dawned on me. Like, I've obviously been very aware of the fact that tomorrow is the anniversary and that I know exactly what I was doing right now last year. And, uh... It didn't dawn on me, though, until I walked outside tonight that, oh, December 9th is the last night that my mom ever experienced. Even though she was already in the hospital and already in you know very serious condition, so it wasn't the last night that she did something, you know, she was, you know, on her way out pretty much. But just that's that's impressive to me to think about, like, my mom's last night on earth in her body. That's a pretty incredible and powerful thought. And I wouldn't have ever imagined that I would have thought of that specific thought. You know, I don't, I don't know. You can't anticipate that. Like that suddenly I just had this moment where I was like, oh, it's night. And exactly one year ago, it was night on December 9th and my mom would die the next day. But I guess I, I didn't imagine sort of memorializing her last night 
opposed to her last day, which is tomorrow. Just one of those weird things that you don't expect to think about until suddenly you're thinking about it. And it makes tonight even more special in a way to think of it that way, because I love night. You know, I've always been a night owl, and I've had to condition myself away from that. But if I, you know, if I let my discipline slip even a tiny bit, I'm up till 4 a.m. If I let my discipline slip even a tiny bit, I'm just mindlessly up all through the night. Um, but uh, So I'm a night owl. So night has a particular significance. Even though my life is much less night-oriented than it's ever been, I still feel that there's something special about the night. So tonight being the eve of the anniversary of my mom's passing, yeah, I think this will always give December night, night something special in addition to just being anticipation for the actual anniversary, which, you know, like I said, is something I'll never forget what December 10th means in my life. Um, but uh, the idea of giving the night before a little something, too. And I mean, you don't even need to give it something. Like I, like I was saying, you know, there's no need to ritualize this. And that was the most incredible thing about a year ago. And not a year ago tonight, a year ago tomorrow and the weeks after my mom actually passed. Because what I, the biggest thought I had the other day, like it was maybe December 5th, which was the first day that my mom started to act strange. The first day that it became clear she was ill in some mysterious way. And it was pretty minor that day. She was just tired. But December 5th was the day where she was just like, I don't feel great. And uh, that day this year, I was just kind of thinking about the anticipation of the first anniversary of all this, and I thought, uh, I was just grateful that I wasn't in that position. Even though my mom was alive a year ago, and in rapidly deteriorating condition, um, you know, you think about going from 100 to zero in the span of five days is what happened to her. She went from just being a a happy, functioning 71-year-old going about her life as she always did and then just completely succumbing to this strange and kind of foreign infection. When you think about necrotizing fasciitis, it seems, as I've said before, that name is comically evil. Necrotizing fasciitis, would it's like something you would read in a pulp novel about some alien virus. Yeah, the Martians let loose a batch of necrotizing fasciitis that will destroy humanity. You know, it sounds so comically evil. It doesn't sound real, necrotizing fasciitis. And so, uh, I think it's fasciitis. Fasci fasciitis. If I'm pronouncing it wrong, as I've said before, I don't care. I don't care if I pronounce the thing that killed my mom right. I don't care if I pronounce it right or wrong. Um, that said, I don't hate it. I don't. I don't hate necrotizing fasciitis. You know, it's easy to hate the thing that kills your mom. I think if you're going to hate something, the thing that killed your mom is probably one of the most excusable hates to have. I don't hate necrotizing fasciitis, but I don't really think about it. Like. I didn't. I, I think I, I read briefly about it on Wikipedia once, right after she died, and then, and then I, as I was reading it, I thought, "Why do I even care? This isn't something that. This is such a freak thing. 
It's one of those things where you have to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and you have to be susceptible in a way that'll, you know, all these, basically all of these inverted stars have to align in such a way for a normal person to get this infection that it wasn't like I was worried, like, oh, am I going to get this? Oh, is this genetic? You know, it wasn't something like where I felt like I had any knowledge that was going to be useful to me about it. And I just kind of had this moment where I was like, I don't, I don't really need to know how this works. I don't really need to know anything beyond it. This necrotizing fasciitis, this, this comically evil sounding infection. Um, but, uh, but thinking about like when I when I started thinking about oh it's December fifth and what was happening a year ago the big thought I had was before any sadness before anything else I was just like I am so grateful I'm not in that position even though my mom was still alive at that time and rapidly deteriorating it was so anxious it was so chaotic it was so just disruptive every cell of my body was just disrupted. It was just, you know, I talk about using your anxiety, using your electricity, trying to kind of funnel it or harness it. It was impossible. You know, I was keeping up my discipline and all that. Uh, but it was it was just impossible to, to settle. And that feeling, especially as the days wore on, as her condition got worse and worse, you don't want to feel that way. I was grieving more then than I grieved afterward. Because I've been grieving... I mean, you grieve... If you if you love somebody, especially your parents who you know are going to die before you, and when you hear horror stories about, you know, oh, like some kid is 10 years old and his mom dies of cancer. You know, you hear about stuff like that. Uh, you hear about... Uh, I mean, and then you just know that at some point, whether you're 10 years old or 50 or 70... Your parent could die. And so you know that that's a likely reality and a better reality. Because a world in which your parents don't die before you is a world in which you die before your parents. And if you would prefer that over your parents dying first, then you deserve to be a bastard. You know, and I don't I don't think there's anybody out there who thinks that truly, who's like, I hope that I die before my parents so that I don't have to experience that sadness. I don't know that there's anybody who thinks that way. I mean, I guess anybody. I mean, when someone kills themselves, that's kind of the message they send. I know that's not what they're thinking. Or when someone ODs, when someone does something insanely reckless, you know, of course they're not sitting there thinking, oh, great. I'm going to die before my parents, and and that's easier than dealing with them dying. You know, it's not like someone does something reckless for that reason, or someone kills themselves for that reason. But uh, whatever pain you could potentially experience as the child experiencing your parents' death, first of all, that's the natural order of things. And I don't know what to say about somebody who, who loses their child. I truly couldn't ever imagine offering that person any insight that I would have, you know, so I I would never want to speak about that, about the way things are supposed to be. I would never want to say to somebody who has lost a child, oh, well, that's God's plan, even if it is, even if that is God's plan for you to lose your child, I would never, who am I to 
ever say something like that. Bally's making a weird noise. Sorry. Hey, buddy. You all right? All right. I, I bugged him. I think he was having a dream. I'm just, I'm worried about everything right now. Um, sorry, buddy. But uh, any, anyway, uh, it was getting getting pretty intense. You know, it's important for me on this show to, you know, this show's goofy and off the wall and zany. You know, it's a bunch of jokes. It's a schoolboy. It's a schoolboy joke hour. A bunch of jokes uh, that aren't funny, and every once in a while, one's funny. Oh, and he's self-deprecating too. No, but uh, it, you know, this is a goofy show. You know, I, I do deliberately want this to be sort of a goofy show in, in a lot of ways. But I also, I like that this is a show where I'm I'm totally comfortable just sliding into sincerity. And it doesn't need to be stuck in one place or another. It's not like, oh, this is going to be 20 minutes of sincerity where we talk very solemnly. For the next 20 minutes, what you are about to hear is 100% sincere. I am talking from the heart about the passing of my dear beloved mother, who was the closest human being that I, that I've ever been to. You know, you know. <laughs> when the narrator says, "You know," uh, no, but really, th- that's not how I feel about this. Like, what I what I like about doing this show is that I feel totally comfortable going from sincerity to something absurd to a joke, all in the span of one thought. And I'm not afraid to do that, even about my mom's passing, especially about that. And who did I learn that from? Who, out of anybody I've known in my life, did I learn that from? Not that I'm mimicking it, but it was my mom who used to mention, like, as she was somebody who experienced a lot of death during her life, and she still saw the humor and still made light, not in a disrespectful way. I mean, there's some, there, I'm, I'm not into the idea of being disrespectful toward the dead. But even since the day my mom died, having a sense of humor about it has not been a deliberate decision, like some some sort of therapy. It's just it's just seemed like how it is. To me, it seemed just part of this whole process. And uh, you know, just some examples of that. You know, not that long ago, I was talking to my friend Miles. And we were talking about we were talking about something that we wanted to do that didn't pan out. It it wasn't able to happen, and uh, we were both disappointed. And the we <laughs> he used this example like like we have this inside joke about uh, this where. Basically, like, just to get back, just to reel this in a little bit, like he said, you know, when, when we were, but we were disappointed about this thing. He was like, "I told my whole family about this," which is an inside joke that we've had for many years. Because about like fifteen, sixteen years ago, this guy we knew was booking a show, a music show, for some artists, some performers, as they're called, and these other guys we kind of knew were booked for it or they thought they were booked for the show. And then when the official lineup was announced, these guys, it turned out, weren't on the show. These performers weren't on the show and they were very upset. 
And this was not a big show. You know, this is this is a very a very niche small thing, but these guys were very upset about not being on the show. And uh they one of the guys was just incensed. You know, one of the guys one of these performers was just incensed and he confronted the guy. He confronted the promoter and the promoter said, "Hey, the guy, well, the guy was like, you know, you said that we were going to play. You said we, you said that we were going to play. And the promoter said it was just pillow talk. And I couldn't believe he said that. It's just pillow talk. I mean, I didn't know this guy that well, but that is beautiful. <laughs> that is so beautifully insulting that he just came up with that. It's pillow talk. I need to use that. Just like cheap den. Two things I want to remember to use when this episode's over. I want to call something a cheap den. And I want to, if somebody's telling me I said I was going to do something that I didn't do, I would just say, it was just pillow talk. It's so beautifully dismissive. You know, and even though this guy insulted these poor guys, I totally understand. And uh, instead of getting like, instead of like locking your horns with this guy who's way too upset about something that doesn't matter. Instead of locking your horns with him, just casually dismissing him by saying it's pillow talk. But when the guy said that, he said it's just pillow. It was just pillow talk, and the guy was like, "Pillow talk." Like I told my whole family, I was gonna be playing this show. <laughs> and I don't think it was a thing. It's not like family is traveling to see you perform. Oh, your family. Oh, we, family is coming from out of town to see me perform in a basement or whatever. You know. Uh, it's not like it was that sort of situation. So it was just this guy, like it was obviously important to him and everything you do is important. And if you're an artist of any kind, of course that's important to you. And I absolutely know how this guy feels, you know, when something doesn't pan out and you feel like you were misled, but it was just, he flew completely off the handle and he pulled out the, I told my family about this. And so miles invoked that, when we were talking about something that didn't work out, just a, an old inside joke that never gets old. Like I told my family and and I was playing on that, you know, I was like, yeah, you know, I, I told my mom about this. And then I, I suddenly cut myself off and I was like, wait, my mom is dead. <laughs> and uh, when I, when I started to make the joke, I, I didn't really compute. Like it was like, I wasn't saying that with the thought in mind that my mom was already dead like I was just riffing on what he was joking about like I told my family oh yeah I told my mom about it and then just realizing mid-thought that my mom was dead and then saying it out loud being like oh wait my mom is dead it was just like perfect timing and and I just couldn't stop laughing you know we were both laughing I, I could not stop laughing though because it's like it was just so funny to me like it was so funny to me to like make that joke like oh yeah I told my mom about this thing and uh then just to realize like I told my my dead mom you know it's I don't know I, I wouldn't even be able to explain it's like it is that you had to be there thing obviously but the important part as far as this discussion goes is just that that's extremely liberating to be able to find the humor in that because you know when my mom actually died like I didn't know what that was going to be like when you're anticipating that. And that's what I mean about not, you know, I, I wouldn't trade anything in the world to be where I was a year ago because there was so much anticipation and I just intuitively knew my mom was going to die the entire time. And there was no amount of positive thinking. There was no amount of 
manifestation. There was nothing magical I could do to keep my mom alive. And even before she went to the hospital, I had a bad, bad feeling. And uh, because of that, I was just sitting there waiting and trying to make the experience just as natural as possible, but with a very real, just you know, even I didn't know she had necrotizing fasciitis. We thought she was having an allergy attack. You know, when your skin starts to develop weird bumps all over it, you don't know what that, you assume that's an allergy. When you start to get weird discolor, I won't go into details, but it's like, it, it seemed like an allergic response at first. So I, you know, there was no outward sign to me that said like, oh, your mom has a life-threatening infection. It was simply a, the only thing telling me my mom was going to die was just intuition. And so I would much rather be living life with the reality that she died than anticipating her dying at any moment for days. And you do grieve your parents, I think, like I was going to get into a minute ago. You do grieve your parents your whole life if you care about them. Like you go through your entire life being scared that they might die you might very well believe that your parents could die at any time. Like I, you know, especially as my mom got older, she's in her seven, she was in her seventies and I started to get worried every time she'd go on a road trip, every time, you know, she'd go to the doctor for anything or trying to get her to go to the doctor was always a problem. Trying to get her to be seen about something, you know, she'd gone through a stroke, just different things. Uh, so you end up worrying about them a lot. And when you worry about somebody, you are grieving them in advance of what's going to happen. It's an, ine- it's an in- inevitable outcome. You know, with your pa- when you're worrying about your parents, I should say. It's not like every time you worry, it's, it's inevitably going to happen. Because parents worry about their children, even though most, pa- most children outlive their parents. Um, but, uh, you know, when you worry about your parents dying... And not in some, like, not like it consumes your life. It's not like I was living some freakish life where I'm just, like, every second I'm thinking about my mom is going to die. But it's just a reality you live with, and you don't want it to happen. And as they get older, you worry. And so in that way, though, it's like I do feel that in many ways I grieved my mom's death for 34 years, 33 years, however long. And when she actually died while I was grieving the loss and that feeling was immense, immeasurable. It was an immeasurable loss completely in every possible. Nothing, nothing could measure that. Nothing could measure that loss. Yet the grief, the anticipatory grief was in some ways more torturous because even though there's a lot to be scared of and worried about and there's a lot to take care of when your parent finally does die and now you have to face this permanent reality and if it's somebody who if you were as close to your mom as I was or even if you weren't it's something that's going to cross your mind forever but still like i in many ways the anticipatory grief was worse because it was all in my head But I think in thinking that way and having some sort of, I wouldn't have called it grief at the time. I didn't know that that was grief until my mom actually died. I wouldn't have been like, oh, I'm worried. Oh, my mom took a road trip and she's old and, you know, I'm just a little worried about her. Uh, You know, I wouldn't be like, oh, I'm grieving. 
I'm grieving her in advance because she's still alive. So I'd never even think of the word grief related to these other sort of feelings. But in many ways, that's because I was going over these possibilities in my head. When you go over the possibility of what's going to happen to somebody and it scares you, you are actually grieving that outcome in advance. And so I did that many times. And, you know, I think things align to where I was also in an extremely disciplined, extremely physically, mentally, spiritually healthy place. Not perfect by any means. I'm not saying I was some master, but I was just in in an ideal place to deal with a... I mean, calling it less than ideal is... is, (laughs) I mean, that's another case of funny. Oh, my mom's death was less than ideal. Yeah, my (laughs) my mom's death was definitely less than ideal. But no, I was in an ideal place to deal with it as far as my own just being goes. Doesn't mean it was perfect, doesn't mean I wasn't, I mean, you can't even imagine, but I never knew what that was going to be like. I never knew what it was going to be like to be at the highest point of that mountain until I was there, and now I'm on the other side of it. I was climbing up the mountain, you climb up that mountain your entire life, and you know that you're going to get to that point, because that point is loss, it is death, especially of your older relatives, the ones you care about the most. You know you're going to get to that point. Some people might feel that way about a spouse, different things, but you know you're going to get to that point, but you don't know what it's going to be like to be there, and you don't you don't know what it's going to be like to be walking down on the other side of the mountain from that point. So it's all this uphill anticipation, and so you're it's grueling. In many ways, I think that sort of anticipatory grief is more grueling on a person if, depending, I mean, depending, it depends on the situation, because I mean, I couldn't possibly, in the same way that I couldn't possibly try to tell somebody who's lost a child to like gain some spiritual insight through the experience, in the same way that I could never tell somebody that, I also can't tell somebody what to think, and I'm not trying to tell anybody what to think, I'm really not, uh, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't even try to say that my experience is comparable to somebody who's lost somebody in a more horrific way. Like if somebody had murdered my mom or we had a close family friend who a month before my mom died, he died in an accident. A guy was driving the wrong way down the freeway and our family friend was on a motorcycle and he was killed. You know, if my loved one died that way. You know, so it's, I'm not trying to say there's some one-size-fits-all approach to this. And I, I know this doesn't really need some disclaimer where it's like, the things that you are listening to about how to deal with death are not meant to be tried anywhere. This guy's weird. Um, no, I, I don't... You know, I don't need to give a disclaimer about don't do what I'm doing now. Because I, I think if you do what I'm doing now, it could help you. If you think about these things the way I'm thinking about them, you know, and and I mean, it's if you ever need motivation to get your shit in order, and I don't have everything in order by any means, but in terms of just your body and your mind and your spirit, if you ever need motivation to do that, and I'm not talking about, you know, doing anything crazy. I'm just saying like feeling physically good every day. Like not feeling bloated, not feeling emaciated, feeling like, you know, just clothes fit you and you can move and sit however you want in any way. Like you just feel comfortable being in your body. 
you know, you, you know, if you ever need motivation for that, for some sort of mental slash spiritual health, like if you've been on the fence about, you know, quitting some sort of substance problem, uh, if you've been curious about, you know, delving a little deeper into some sort of spiritual pursuit, one motivation to actually go and do it, to develop some sort of discipline, is it will help you deal with the worst situations, you know, in the most marvelous ways, and you won't even have to try. All you have to do is stay focused. Because I will 100% credit feeling good with my ability to process my mom's death as it was happening and afterward, especially in the immediate time. In the immediate time. And, and I'll get into the time after that. You know, we'll, who knows how long we'll talk here. Um, there's no constraints. Uh, you know, by, but if you've been on the fence about doing something, that, this is all it comes down to. You know, it doesn't matter what I just said. It, it comes down to if you've been thinking about doing something that you know is good for you, that just from universal consent, something that is time-honored and good, if you've been thinking about doing it, one motivation to do it is you will be able to handle grief and death and maybe not every maybe not every death but you'll be able to handle those situations so much better than you ever imagined because there was points in my life where I never thought about what would actually happen when my mom died but I would have expected it to be something where the rumble of my scream caused earthquakes you know you think about like being there with my mom as she died in ICU being alone behind the curtain with with her as I knew her heart was stopping and she had lost consciousness hours earlier. But uh, as she died, I, I wouldn't have known what my reaction to that would be. You know, it could have been like something very dramatic out of a movie, like just, no, you know, just some sort of guttural noise, maybe. Could have just been some sort of guttural noise that just it would have been tectonic. But no. It was quiet. It was honestly smooth. It was just... It felt like a glow was transferred. It felt like... It felt like, you know, not physically, but it, it just... Sort of uh, spiritually, for lack of a better word, it just felt... I just felt like a glow go into my body. And... Uh, I And then that feeling... If I could... If I could sell the way I felt on December 10th and onward for the the weeks after my mom passed, if I could if I could, you know, sell that, that would be the most popular drug that anybody ever consumed or wanted to consume, not because it was all pleasure. You know, I was very sad, but I've never felt more clear I've never had a more meaningful manic state. I've never felt like I was floating, positively floating. And I think the fact that all of these sensations were coupled with grief was a good thing because that grief was almost like an anchor. Where if I didn't have these moments of just utter despair and grief, I would have actually become a ball of light and just floated off into the, the air. 
That's how I was feeling at the time. So if I didn't have these stresses, like all of a sudden, oh, I have to take account of all my mom's assets and figure out what bills are paid and what bills aren't paid and what she owes. What does she have a credit card open? Does she have, you know, all of these stressful, cold things like that combined with the, the actual loss, the enormity of that loss, you know, those were an anchor to everything else I was feeling. And if those weren't there, I mean, they were, even with those anchors, I felt like I was barely being held down. I kept saying to friends at the time, I felt like I was in the command center of a battle station because I had just, I had phones and computers and I just had all these devices set up on the the kitchen island and paperwork and all these things. And I was just, I never sat down. I was calling people, calling places. Just It was just, I felt like I was looking at some kind of grid and, and like I was a commander in a battle station just pointing to things and buttons are being pressed and, you know, communications are made. That's how I felt. I really felt like I was, you know, you want to talk about a sense of purpose I felt just such an immense sense of purpose because I have to tell people about this and not just tell people, but I I had a desire to talk to a lot of people, people my family hasn't talked to in years. You know, all sorts of people. You you think about somebody who's 71 and they accumulate a lot of, she was a, a very popular person. So there's a lot of people from the past that you need to contact. And me being me, you know, I wanted to say more than just some solemn, I didn't want to just leave him with my mom died. Bye. You know, I don't want to leave somebody with that. <laughs> and, uh, so I wanted to talk to him a little bit and it felt good to talk about it. It felt really good to talk about how she died. It felt good to talk about, those five days with people, even though it's not her life, even though her life isn't represented by those five days of deterioration, it felt it made that process easier to think about and talk about those things. But it, just getting back to the sensations, you know, I, 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 I had it was positively electric, but it was beyond electricity. It was operating off of pure light. Like I talk about electricity as something that you you know, you feel in the form of anxiety, but how you can kind of harness that into something that actually powers you. And it's difficult to do. I mean, that's something that's easier said than done. I was feeling really anxious like two days ago, I think in anticipation for the anniversary, a bunch of things I was feeling anxious about. And I was feeling the electricity. I was on a walk and I was feeling it in my arms, getting that that arm feeling. That's how you know it. You feel the electricity in your arms and I was like, oh, man, I'm anxious. And I thought about all the shit I've said, you know, on this show, and it felt really foreign. <laughs> even though that's something that I practice, even though I regular, regularly for years have turned electricity into something I can use rather than letting it dominate me in the form of anxiety, even though I feel very accomplished in that regard, in this moment a couple of days ago, I was just like, what do I what do I even talk about when I say those things? Like, where am I? That's just a bunch of nonsense. You know, I was, I was walking around just feeling anxious and I was thinking about all this electricity talk and being like, that's just a bunch of nonsense. Like, like I'm having an anxiety attack here. 
So it doesn't always, you know, even if you, even if you've kind of learned how to deal with that sort of feeling, you've learned how to use it to your advantage, even that electricity, there are still moments where it's just like, man, I'm just, I'm anxious. What is all this electricity talk? Are you crazy? You know, even I feel that way. Um, but, uh, this feeling a year ago, almost a year ago now, a year ago tomorrow, and, and for the weeks after that, that wasn't quite like that. This was more just like, it just felt like pure light was emanating from my body and coming into my body. It just, everything felt perfectly harmonized. I was the least superstitious I've ever felt in my life. And in the same way, the other day when I was having an anxiety attack, I thought like, how could anyone do something useful with this feeling? What's this guy talking about? Doing something useful with this awful feeling? You know, even though, like, I was saying that to myself, uh, it's, uh, what was I saying about, I was talking about the light. And it makes sense that those would be similar feelings, like a, like a, a feeling of light emanating from you or into you, both. Of course, that would be correlated with electricity. Um, I don't know what I was saying. It doesn't. I don't need to get hung up on it. Um, but just that feeling of light, just operating off of pure light, and uh, you know, just harmonizing with everything, not being superstitious. Oh yeah, yeah. That's what I was gonna say. Is that in the same way though that like when I was having the anxiety attack, I was thinking like, oh, I, I don't know how you could ever do anything with this. Am I full of shit when I talk about doing something with this feeling, doing something useful with it? I must be full of shit. Because in that moment, you can't understand anything else. It's like if, you're, if you've ever had a bad trip on drugs, in that moment, it doesn't make sense that you're ever going to feel differently. Like if you've taken too many mushrooms and you're having just this insane, you feel sick to your stomach, it's just too much. You know, in that moment, it's it's hard, even if you have somebody around you, and I've never had somebody around me in those moments, but even if you have somebody who's telling you it's going to be okay and it's a temporary feeling, in that moment, it's not temporary. And I get that feeling, too, when I'm actually sick. Like, when I've had the flu, if I'm, like, throwing up or I'm just really under the weather, in that moment, I kind of have resigned myself to feeling that way forever. I'm kind of like, this life just feels this way now. Even though it's going to be gone in two days, in my mind, because I feel this way now, it's like it brings you into the moment in a way, <laughs> you know, the, it's hard to get into with positive things. But the reason why everybody says be in the moment and they mean it in sort of a positive way, like when good things are happening, make sure you are present. Like one of the reasons people say that is because you naturally do it with negative things. Like when something negative happens to you, you don't go, oh, I'm going to be in the moment. You actually do, like, you're forced into the moment, and if it's something like, you know, a bad trip or something really bad happened, or you just don't feel good, it just, it feels like this is how I'm going to feel forever. Like, if you've gotten broken up with, you'll have this feeling for a while where you're like, oh, this is just how life feels now. And then you won't even notice it. It's like the light's going back on after a power outage, but there'll be a point where you're just like, oh, I don't feel shitty anymore. Like, I always bring this up on this show, but when when you have a power outage, try to make a mental note and think, I'm going to remember how I, f like, I'm going to notice the second I start taking this for granted again. Like, as soon as the lights come back on, you're like, oh, the lights are back on, and it's a novelty for, one time I said an hour, I think it's 
five minutes. I think when the lights go back on after a power outage, you are grateful and you feel that it's a novelty for about five minutes before you start just going back to normal. Because I've even done a little experiment on myself the last couple power outages I've had where I've said to myself, like, catch yourself the moment that you realize you're just flipping on a light switch without thinking about it. Because when there's a power outage, you, you flip on the lights slowly like you're a fucking monkey. Like you, you like slowly flick the light switch to test the lights. Or that first time the lights go back on, when you think the power's back, you flick the light switch very deliberately. But catch yourself. The, the moment that you're taking electricity for granted again is the moment that you walk into a room without even thinking about the fact that you're turning the lights on. But it's amazing. Like I, I was thinking like, oh, you know, maybe an, after maybe an hour you start unconsciously doing things again. You start unconsciously just looking at shit on your computer instead of that feeling you have right after a power outage when the lights go back on and you turn your laptop on and you're like, oh, I've got to check these essentials. It's like you have this checklist in your mind and then it's not an hour. It's like five minutes. Even when you're conscious of it, like even when you're like doing a little experiment with yourself, it's like five minutes before you're just turning your going to random websites and like it's and flicking light switches without even thinking you know it's that short of an amount of time and uh the thing about like i mean and i guess that's like a good example too of of this process for me because i you know that sensation i was talking about where i i myself felt like light was just pouring out of me and I just felt totally in harmony with everything. I felt like I've, I felt like I never had clearer thoughts. I felt like I never loved people, humanity, any more than I did in that moment. And I felt no superstition. I didn't feel like I needed to do anything ritualistic. I don't feel like I had to do anything in any specific way in order to maintain that feeling I had or to get the results I was getting out of my interactions with the world. Like, I didn't feel that what I was doing required anything except to just be. And that's w exactly what it was. There was, because I had had this experience that was more powerful than anything else I've ever experienced holding my mom and watching her as she died, because there's nothing comparable to that, it makes sense that you're going to feel completely different. Like, you're at that peak, you're at that sharp point of the mountain, and then now you're... I mean, really, it was like, you know, I didn't even mean for it to, to work out this way, but talking about how you're now going downhill on the other side of the mountain... You almost have that same amount of push. It's almost like in the same way, if you were to run down a mountain, how you would almost just be flying. I mean, it would be dangerous. It would be dangerous to run down a mountain. But you almost have that same sense, like almost like, oh, I'm just, I'm free falling. And I'm just trying to kind of get my feet on the ground a little bit here and there. I'm just trying to skid my feet here and there because I'm pretty much hopping and skipping all the way down this mountain. And that's what I mean, too, by like feeling like I was floating. It's a good thing I had grief to bring me back down to earth and help my feet kind of skid in the gravel because I was positively floating, floating. Um, I mean, I, I want to go down to the river this summer and say, oh, hey, I, I see all you folks are 
doing some inner tubing down the river. You're you're tubing. It's nice to see you you float. It's nice to see you all floating. But I'll tell you this: uh, the experience of losing somebody you love will make you float in such a way that an inner tube could never. You can't recreate the feeling of losing a parent through those inner tubes, you know. No, getting weird again. We're just getting weird. Who, who are you to talk this way? What gives you the right? And that ties back to the segue a while back, which is uh, what I learned in this process too. Well, hold on, I'll get to that's a that's a. I want to save that for later. Uh, none of this is planned. I'm just, I'm winging it, but I, I do, I'm seeing a structure for this in my mind. But, uh, you know, like I was talking about, like the feeling of turning on a light switch and like the moment you start taking that for granted again after a power outage, the moment that you no longer deliberately flip the lights on. It's just something you do when you walk in a room. That's not bad. Like you're not a jerk, like you're not greedy. You're not spoiled because now you're not like slowly lifting your arm to the light switch. You're n- There's nothing wrong with that because now you're living your life, which is what you want all along. All along, you don't, you don't need to exist in this. I mean, if you, there's, there's people who do slowly lift their hand to the light switch. There's people who have like a ritual that has to go along with everything and they're, they have obsessive compulsive disorder. Not to say that's not, they're not magical. Okay, I hear the coyotes, and Batty hears them too. Um, but uh, you know, it's I'll just let him. Since the coyotes are out there, let me just see if I can turn this up for a minute. I don't know if you if you can hear those coyotes. I'm sure, Batty's bark is very loud. That's very cool. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, you hear them. Oh, they re- they really sound ghoulish right now. This is a welcome disruption. I welcome the sound of coyotes and Batty responding to their sound. He's even howling. Ow! Ow! Good boy. Good boy. Yeah, he. If I howl, he'll howl along with me. And so I, I like that he was howling with the coyotes. Howling with your cousins over there. You howling with your cousins? But anyway, back back to the idea of taking the light switch for granted, taking power, taking electricity for granted, and how um, you know, that happens in other ways in your life. In the same way that I was feeling, like I said, if I could sell this feeling, even though people would be like, who would ever want to feel what you were feeling in the days and weeks after your mom died? You know, even though somebody with their rational mind could not possibly understand that. They couldn't possibly, with their science brain, they couldn't possibly understand how a son would say that the days after his mom died were the kind of the, the strong, like almost the best feeling he's ever had. And I, and I say best in the sense that it's like the most in tune with what it is to be alive. I don't mean best as in pleasurable or best as in fun. Although I, I managed to f- have fun somehow, you know, but, and, uh, and kind of like I want this show to, Hey buddy, it's okay. Hey buddy, 
In the same way, I want this show to go between sincerity, even grief sometimes, which it has gone there before, to comedy, to irreverence, to some random political crap that doesn't matter. Uh, one of the reasons, though, I, I want there to be a full range of expression is is because, like, that's the sort of feeling, not because of that. I mean, the show has always tried to do that. But it's like, you can live your life that way as well. And a year ago, I felt like my entire existence was cycling through, and not the stages of grief. I never went through the, at least so far, I haven't gone through the seven deadly stages of grief, the seven deadly sins of grief. I haven't experienced that um, so much, you know, maybe one or two here or there, but I don't think I've really gone through that process. Um, but uh, just uh, with that feeling, um, the fact that it covered so much ground, that it was there was a lot of fun to it. There was a lot of horror to it. There was a lot of terror. There was so much beauty. I mean, that goes without saying. All those things. Even the terror was beautiful. Um, but, uh, you know, it just, it really covered the entire spectrum of feelings. And I wouldn't have it any other way. It was like every, every channel on the equalizer was pushed to max. The good and the bad. It was just like, it was almost like uh, when kids make that pop, when they, when kids would go to birthday parties at, say, a pizzeria growing up, any place they have a, an open soda fountain where you get your own soda. Uh, your own soda and candy bar? No, no candy bars here. This is, this is at a pizzeria. But in the same way that kids would make that, what they called a graveyard drink, which is where you mix a little bit of each flavor of soda pop. So it just ends up tasting like flat Dr. Pepper. It just always ends up tasting like some disgusting old flat Dr. Pepper. But you put a little bit of Dr. Pepper, a little bit of Sprite. I'm giving you a recipe here. A little bit of Coca-Cola, a little bit of Diet Coke. If you really want to get weird, you put a little bit of the diet drinks in too. Um, So it was called the graveyard drinks. It had a little bit of everything. And that's kind of, I mean not even trying to make a joke, graveyard death and all that. But yeah, the the days after my mom died, it was kind of like the graveyard drink of emotions where it was pretty much every possible feeling you could ever have under the sun at the same time with more energy than you've ever felt, with more clarity, more alignment with not just the earth, but the entire universe. I mean, it was really something. And you would sound crazy. I mean, even just me saying all this sounds a little bit crazy. But I knew, and I was talking to my friend Nick. I, I reconnected with my childhood friend Nick like during that process. And I was talking to so many people, and I felt so connected to all of them. And I felt like she was in me, speaking through me as well. I felt like her representative. Um, but I was talking to Nick, and I remember he was saying, like, pay attention and don't forget this feeling that you have. And uh, it was the feeling I'm describing right now, because at the time I was very aware of the fact that I was feeling this way. And to my closest friends, I was just I was letting them know, you know, what this sensation was like. And I remember Nick saying, he said specifically, pay attention. You know, you don't want to forget this, what you're feeling. And uh, he was, you know, very right. There's a reason why this guy is my friend. And uh I don't know when that feeling exactly, I I don't feel like that feeling is gone entirely, but that feeling definitely, you can't sustain that. 
you cannot sustain. I mean, first of all, it's like the reality of what you went through is going to just settle in, even though the whole world went through madness and is going through madness. And that's kind of funny to say just real quick. It's like because I've been so consumed for the past three days with the anniversary of my mom's death coming up, I've pretty much completely forgotten there's anything else going on in the world. Um, but, uh, you know, you can't sustain that and you shouldn't want to. Like I said, it was like even though this feeling was incredible and it, and the only thing anchoring me to earth was the grief and terror that I would occasionally experience and they were welcome anchors. Because, I mean, you can't live that way. I mean, you can't, unless you're going to truly just transcend this human life in that moment, you can't possibly be a human living that life. Unless you're going to try to rip people off, you're going to be a, some sort of teacher or master. Oh, my mom died and I became a spiritual master. You know, and, that, and then that's how you lose that feeling real quick, is to try to, like, capitalize on it. And I never felt like less of a desire to be creative. I did do a drawing that I liked, but, you know, I didn't feel a desire to be, I didn't feel like the need to challenge this or uh, channel this creatively. Uh, And it was was actually kind of a good uh, misspoken, what I just said there was was actually uh, how it felt. Like if I were to do something creative, it actually would have challenged this feeling that I had. If I were to try to kind of like, yeah, I don't, I don't know, use it for something like that. I don't feel like it would have been the right use of that feeling, which is funny because my entire life I've been chasing that feeling for the purpose of using it. Hey, buddy, I know. I'm, I'm just letting this episode be more barky than usual because, hey, you know, the coyotes. You may have been able to hear them. I tried to jack up the mic while they were going. You may have heard them yourself. You may be howling still yourself. You may be barking if you heard the coyotes in the background. So it's more than understandable that Batty, who, you know, he gets upset if he hears a kid outside. If he hears kids playing, he's upset. So when he hears a thousand screaming, howling, ragtag dogs, it's more than understandable that he has a barking fit. Um... But I knew that feeling was going to go away, and I didn't want it to. I wanted it to last as long as it possibly could. Because nothing else is going to give you that. You know, like nothing else is going to give you that feeling. And probably nothing else it could. You know, you know you're know, you going to lose people in your life, not just one person. But it's like losing my mom was without a doubt the big one. That's the big one. And uh, so nothing is going to ever have that particular effect, that that singular, and and also just the circumstances too, of being the only person down here with her and being the only person to be there in the moment of her passing, touching her, you know, that's, it's just the, the, the entire set of circumstances just, you can't ever expect that to happen again in your lifetime. You only have one mom. And the idea of all of that just falling together to where you have this final, just, um, I was going to say stark, but I would say warm, this final warm moment, you know, the fact that everything could, could, could 
roll into that moment is just you can never you could never um expect that you could never you know i never it was it was almost cinematic really and uh i didn't it didn't feel cinematic but it was it almost had that sort of glacial pace to it it felt like time was slowed down and so i feel very fortunate and so i don't know what other deaths do i've had other people die in my life but yeah, this, this for me was the big one. But I also knew that feeling was going to go away, that sensation afterward. And uh, like my friend Nick said, pay attention. But I don't know the moment that it went away. You know, I think I still had it a bit in February. You know, it might have honestly been Coronivi. It might have been... Coronivi might have stolen my feeling. Coronivi stole the sensation. No, I don't know what it was exactly. I don't know the moment that it happened because I wasn't paying attention, but it's fine. I mean, it's just it's sort of a funny game to play because the goal isn't to catch the moment. Catching the moment that you unconsciously stop feeling a certain way, it's kind of like getting better. Like, you know you're get, when you're sick and you know you're getting better, you can feel the fact that you're better but you don't really notice the moment that you're totally better. And it's almost impossible to, because there is something gradual. Even if it is a sharp, uh, even if it is like a sharp gradation, it's still a gradient. It's still gradual. And so the moment that you lose a certain sensation, I, you know, I, I think that's comparable in a way, in, in any way that you, anytime you, gain a sensation or lose a sensation it's you know the exact moment that it hits you or or the it leaves you isn't always going to be apparent to you and it's almost something that's uncatchable it's almost like some sort of object that you can't quite ever grasp you can think about it you know there is a moment you know there is some moment when you no longer feel a certain way but to try to map that out or understand it is almost impossible. Although you can, I, sometimes though you know, I mean, like I can tell you that my mom actually dying in front of me was the moment that it activated that feeling. I know when that feeling got activated, I just can't tell you when I, um, when I, when I just lost sight of it, I wouldn't, I didn't take it for granted. I just couldn't maintain it. You know, you, you take for granted the fact that your house has electricity after a power outage. But in this case, it wasn't a matter of taking it for granted. It was just, you can't sustain that sensation. I don't know how you would. I mean, I think if I were to try to sustain that sensation, it would, I would have had to have sold all my belongings and just gone naked into the cold. I would have, I would have just had to wander out into the naked wild and uh, just lo- gotten lost. I think that's the only way that I could have possibly sustained it, and then I wouldn't be alive for very long after that. You know, I, I just don't think you can live that way. Not because you go crazy, but I just think, uh, you know, I already did that. I already went crazy a long time ago. Uh, so it's not even a matter of, oh, you can't live that way without going crazy. You just, you come back to Earth. You know, you do come back to Earth. Um, yeah, what else here? I mean, I, the, the thought is, 
there was something that I, when I was structuring this, there was something that I was going to get to. I don't know that it was that all important. I mean, the right, what originally segued into this whole thing was this idea of like, it's my right to talk about something a certain way or do things a certain way. And the amazing thing about losing somebody, like in my position, like, you know, my mom was very close to, you know, everybody she loved, but it was like my mom and I had a particularly close relationship, you know, where, you know, we, we both spent more time with each other than probably anybody else ever because you, my sister moved out, you know, when she was 18, came back briefly in her twenties, but I was pretty much an only child at home for years because my sister was seven years older. So that's seven years of just me living at home with only my mom. And then of course, you know, we continued to live near each other in Olympia and, uh, I saw her all the time. And then a sh- relatively short time before she died, I'd moved back in with her. So, you know, this is a person that I spent to date more time with than anybody else in my life. And, uh, when, uh, when, uh, what was I going to say? Um, oh, well, well, because of that, and it, and it's not even about like measuring the time of it. I'm just saying there is sort of a measurable component where it's like you've spent this much actual time together. And I mean, it it goes without saying, you know, a mom and her son. But uh, on top of that, we were just, you know, we were just very close to each other. And uh, that gives me the right to do whatever I want in the wake of her death. And that's an interesting feeling because with funerals and with death, even the deaths of people that you care about and that you are close to, who are maybe your friends your relatives, you still feel this, you feel like you have to kind of follow the established way of talking. There's a lot of platitudes, not that platitudes are wrong, not that they are not meaningful or relevant. There's a reason why there are certain platitudes that stay meaningful and relevant, but it's like, there's a certain way of talking and certain way of conducting yourself. And, you know, you have to be solemn and you don't want to say the wrong thing to their wife or their husband, you know, there's their kid. You don't want to say the wrong thing to somebody, not that you would, but it's just that there isn't a spectrum. There isn't a range to it. And, and, you know, sometimes if somebody was a character, like, like, you know, sometimes it's like if somebody liked to party or something like the people who, the people who are left behind will be like, no, you know, screw that. We're going to have a party. We're going to drink. We're going to like make jokes. You know, sometimes if the person had kind of a, if they had carved out a niche for themselves that said, don't take my shit too seriously when I die, people will respond in kind. But even then it can get kind of weird because like some family members will think like, oh no, this has to be a solemn affair. And then others will be like, well, no, but he wouldn't have wanted this. He wouldn't have wanted this, which is always funny when people invoke the he wouldn't have wanted this, especially now that we're in this age of creating AI CGI versions of murder victims. You know, it's it's really changed the way we <laughs> we're no longer saying like so and so's turning in their grave, so and so. Oh God, he would have hated this. Oh, your dad, your dad would have hated that you voted for George Bush. Um, you know, people invoke that all the time. And then now we're creating like CGI versions of dead people to say what we want them to say. 
he'd be turning in his grave. In fact, he already turned in his grave, and we have your dad here right now. He's in CGI form, but he's going to tell you what he thinks about your new girlfriend. Um, hey, buddy. Um, but, uh, but no, it's like, it, and it gives them the right. Like, I mean, if, if it's your, if you're the one, like, like with those, with the Parkland shooting kid who got recreated in CGI for some political ca- ad, some political campaign, some, some ad, you know, his parents re- had him recreated for that. I'm, you know, I'm not in a position to tell them what to do with their grief. I personally don't love that. Regardless of the fact that they are grieving parents, I don't love the precedent it sets. Because if it wasn't them, it would be somebody else doing it. And other people are doing this. You know, Kim Kardashian, she had a CGI image of her father who, like, played a message. He sang a song to her or something. And, I mean, it's it, there's a sweet element to it. I just don't really love the, the precedent that sets. Um, but I'm not here to tell anybody what to do with their relative's likeness or their memory of them, or how they talk about them, because I wouldn't want somebody to do that to me, because what was really difficult for me when I was talking to certain people after my mom died, in those first days where it was just like nonstop communication at the battle station, a lot of radio calls coming in and outgoing, ingoing and outgoing transmissions to the battle station, you know, doing a lot of those, and it was difficult because some people are really it's not just that they're being solemn and I don't know, just it's not that they're being kind of like straightforward, like what you would expect from somebody to say, it's not that they're necessarily doing it for you, but you almost get the impression that they can't fathom the idea of somebody doing anything else. And so I didn't want to like make a joke or something. I, I I felt like here as the grieving son the one at the epicenter of this, I felt like I had to be careful about what I said to some of her friends or random people we know. And that was, it was I, found, I found the humor in that, though. Like, I found the humor in the fact that here I am, this is my beloved mother, and I'm experiencing this all. It's all on my shoulders, really. And I took it on my shoulders. Nobody put it on my shoulders. I took all this on my shoulders, and here I have the heaviest load, and uh, I'm at the epicenter of, of the grief, of the practical mess that you have to deal with, that you have to sort out when someone dies. You know, here I am at the, at the center of all that. I don't need to. Uh, did you know I was at the epicenter? Um, and I, here I am, the one feeling like I have to be careful about what I say. And I didn't resent that. That wasn't a feeling I resented, but it made me realize that like some people are a little more fragile than I realized. Like some people, they need to just go through the process of, I'm so sorry for your loss. Is there anything I can do? Which I don't dismiss. Like somebody who says that, that's wonderful. There might be a day where I have to ask somebody, and somebody who said, is there anything I can do? Not now, but there might be some time where I need it. I, I'm more than grateful for that. I'm more than grateful for like the, that traditional sort of dialogue. Like I think we have a need for those people. But I was just very aware of the fact that talking to some of those people, oh, if I say something weird, it might really disrupt them. And they might be grieving my mom in their own way. They might have a different way of grieving with it. I've certainly seen that through this process. But it was just a weird feeling thinking, oh, 
I feel like I have to actually watch what I say around them because I feel stronger than them in this situation, which is strange. I don't know that I am. I'm not going to assume that I'm stronger. But in this moment, I feel like I have more command of the situation or something. Uh, So that was just an interesting feeling that I had then of being like, I have to watch what I say so I don't offend somebody. Uh, but it, ultimately, I knew, though, it didn't matter to me, though, ultimately, because I knew that it was my right to do and say whatever I wanted. And, and again, like within reason, like I didn't have anything disrespectful to say about my mom. She was a wonderful woman, and I, I had nothing disrespectful to say about her. Doesn't mean that we didn't get into fights, that I didn't annoy her, that she didn't, doesn't mean she didn't annoy me sometimes. But it's like I have nothing bad to say. Like, there's no dirty, dark secret, uh, you know, so I'm very fortunate in that way and that I feel like I, I'm allowed to have a very pure response to the situation. But part of having a pure response to it is not just the purity of, not just the purity of, um, hold on, Batty, hey, Batty, hey, buddy. I'm going to wrap this up soon here. I think it's it's gone on long enough. But um, just just the purity of being able to feel whatever you want. Like there's a purity of the light. Like there's a purity of that sensation I was describing, which felt like light just inside and outside of me. But there's also a purity to the fact that I could say whatever I wanted and just deal with the situation however I wanted and cry when I wanted to cry, laugh when I wanted to laugh, just think wow this is interesting i mean i kept saying that to myself this is interesting (laughs) no i kept no not even just this is interesting i remember having the specific thought this is the most interesting thing i've ever experienced this is the most interesting thing that has ever happened to me i was just astonished you know you go into target and i mean there were synchronicities there were things going on too but it's like you walk into Target and you see something and you just start laughing. Because you're, it's like the three days after your mom died and you're walking around Target during Christmas time. And uh, you, you just feel this. It's like nothing. It's like going. It's, you know, it's what people want from drugs. But this is something that no drug could ever give you. And I'm talking about all this like it's something desirable, like, oh, somebody close to you has to die. Or, or, or I'm even like implying that this isn't somehow accessible under other circumstances. But I just I know that I've never experienced anything like it. Uh, and part of it is knowing that, you know, I don't have to run this by anybody else like my own family, you know, I don't know. I, I in my own family, like they have their own relationships to my mom. Everybody's grieving, but I didn't feel like the need to run anything by them. You know, I, I didn't feel like I was having. I didn't feel like I had to censor myself at all, because it was one of the few situations I've been in in life where it all comes down to it. it just anything I say goes. I get to decide what I do. I get to decide what I say about my mom and her death. And it's it's a it was a very liberating feeling cuz I had nothing bad to say. I had only I have I mean my mom was my idol. 
You know, she was in so many ways, and I didn't realize that, you know, I didn't grow up thinking that. I didn't grow up thinking, oh, my mom's my idol. I think I would have turned out a lot differently for the worse if I was, like, conscious of, like, trying to be my mom. But when she died, I realized, oh, wait, that woman is the ideal. That woman is is like a bodhisattva, and that is the ideal that you want to strive toward. Not that I would try to be her, but recognizing that she is definitely a part of me. And because of that, I can strive toward that ideal in some kind of way. I can try to be maybe not that kind, but I can try to be kind knowing how kind somebody like that can be. I can try to increase the amount of goodwill I have in knowing that you know, somebody else can, knowing, knowing that somebody else could offer as much goodwill as she offered made me very aware of the fact that I can at least do a little better. I think that'd be a nice way to put it. <laughs> um, and so the total, you know, it's, so it helps if you have, it helps if you greatly loved your parent, you know, it helps with that. I don't, again, like I wouldn't know what to tell somebody who hated their parent. I wouldn't know, like, I would have no idea what to tell somebody whose parent did something awful to them. If their parent was abusive or really scarred them, I would have no idea what to tell them in this situation. I can only tell somebody what my situation was like, and I'm very lucky. I'm very lucky that I could deal with death under the circumstances that I dealt with it. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.